Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Racial segregation is a modern-day problem here in New England. It's pretty clear that people of color tend to be excluded from suburbs and from, in some cases, rural areas. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll look at how local zoning rules perpetuate segregation. And is it time to push forward on climate action when the federal government is already spending money on pandemic disaster relief? I would point to that and say, yeah. Let's keep doing that. And by the way, in solving that pandemic economic downturn, you can invest those dollars in that clean energy future that will pay dividends over the next few decades. Plus, the creator of the hashtag Black in the Ivory talks about racism in academia and why her movement took off. I think because for so long, Black academics, we've never been able to share our stories. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. When we talk about racial segregation, some of us think back to history when overtly racist laws were on the books. But our first guest argues that local zoning rules today, here in New England, are perpetuating segregation. Sarah Bronin is a Mexican-American architect, attorney, law professor at the University of Connecticut, and an expert in land use. And she joins us to talk about how zoning can exclude people of color from certain towns and what we should do to change that. Sarah, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. So on a basic level, local zoning rules determine where people can live and work. And in a recent op-ed, you wrote that zoning is, quote, one of the most important perpetuators of fundamental inequalities in the country today, unquote. And before we dig into that point, where are people of color being excluded in New England? Well, you you can look at patterns from the census and other sources of information, and it's pretty clear that people of color tend to be excluded from suburbs and from, in some cases, rural areas where lot sizes are pretty large, uh, housing prices are pretty high, and the schools are pretty good. And and what kinds of laws do this? Well, in particular, my focus is, is zoning laws. So as you said, I'm a land use professor. And so what I look at is how the laws uh, impact the choices that people can make for themselves. For instance, if a, a suburb says, using the minimum lot size example, for every house you build, you have to have two or three acres of land, automatically that drives up prices and excludes people who can't afford to buy that uh, amount of land. What that does down, you know, as you, the consequence of that is that um, people who have low incomes are concentrated in the cities, and the deconcentration of poverty has many uh, additional consequences. So the impacts extend beyond housing, right? It's limiting other opportunities as well. Right. It extends to uh, people's ability to access a good education. It extends to people's ability to um, to 
maybe get more more breathing room, um, more light and air, more trees, different change of scenery from from our cities. Um, And it also impacts their ability to access jobs. I'm not trying to say that cities in New England uh, are not good places to live. In fact, you know, cities across uh, New England have been improving and have been adding services and have been focusing on their parks and have been focusing on their school systems. Hartford is one of those. But at the same time, for me, the biggest problem is constraining choice and constraining people's ability to, to have that choice. You also wrote that zoning laws segregate people under the, quote, rationale of preserving property values and maintaining orderly development. You say, in the law, the concept of orderliness is a thinly veiled euphemism often used to exclude black and brown people, unquote. You live in Hartford, Connecticut. How do you see this playing out where you live? Well, so one of the things that we've been hearing as we've started to gather people together in Connecticut to talk about this issue is that towns want to maintain a sense of their, quote, character. And in fact, in our laws here in Connecticut, and I'm sure in other states in New England, we have this word character, and we have this this phrase, orderly development. Um, And those are two things that suburbs, small towns, sometimes hang on to, to say, well, we can't have anything that's different than what we have today. And and so if if the key or one of the big keys is to make it easier to have affordable housing units in towns and suburbs, how should zoning laws change? Right. So so different states have taken different approaches to this this question because inherently local governments derive their powers from the states and what the the powers that the states give them. So one option to change what we do today is to amend those state laws to give towns more guidance as to what they should and should not be permitting. For example, a state might say, uh, you can't prohibit multifamily housing. Uh, Or it might say, only a certain percentage of the land can be uh, required to have minimum residential lot sizes. Or it might say, like New Jersey does, every community has to provide its fair share of housing. As you're advocating for these changes, what are the barriers you see to achieving reforms? It's always difficult to change the status quo. There are a lot of interests in the system as it is today, whether you're here in Connecticut or in Vermont or in uh, New Hampshire. People are always reluctant to change. And so I think that the biggest barrier is really just that, you know the inherent reluctance to change that we have as people. So I'm wondering, um, do you see an irony in the fact that in a number of white, affluent suburban towns in Connecticut, people have marched in support of Black Lives Matter, and yet these are the places where zoning ordinances have, in effect, largely excluded Black people from living there? I see this moment as an opportunity. I think that people's minds are changing about their own choices and their own communities and how open they are to to others. And I think that the time to consider these changes is now because I really do think that we have a moment, a political moment, to, to rethink some of the structures that organize our society. Are zoning reforms a test to see if these white protesters are truly allies? I think, again, it's an opportunity for for everyone who has marched in support of Black Lives Matter to consider how they can be a part of the solution. It doesn't help our society as a whole if we 
uh, oppress or undermine opportunities for any particular group. And I think the solidarity that we've seen is a testament to that. So I, well, I wouldn't call it a test. I would call it an opportunity. I think there's a lot of really good people and they just have it around. And I think many of them just haven't realized the way that the legal, the way that the law is structured really affects the issue that, that they care about right, right here and now. Sarah Bronin is a land use expert and law professor at the University of Connecticut. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. In 2016, the city of Hartford, Connecticut overhauled its zoning laws. Now there's a concerted effort underway called Desegregate CT to push for more changes in the state. We head to Vermont now, where last month, the state's governor, Phil Scott, publicly apologized to an African-American Vermonter who was harassed while driving a vehicle with New York license plates. The governor said the incident put a spotlight on racism and xenophobia that has intensified under the coronavirus pandemic, and he ordered Vermont State Police to investigate the encounter. But as Vermont Public Radio's Peter Hirschfeld reports, another incident, this time captured on video, is raising questions about how police deal with incidents of racial harassment and bias. And according to the head of the Vermont chapter of the NAACP, access to justice in Vermont can depend on where you live. The video you're about to hear was recorded by the same man who's doing all the yelling. No, I'm protecting my family. Get out of here. Go back to your infected state. The targets of his angry rant are two Latina women sitting in the parking lot of a shopping plaza in Rutland City next to a white SUV with New York license plates. The women, it turns out, are employees of a New York-based cleaning company. The firm, called Janitronics, was contracted to provide janitorial services at a hospital surge site set up by Rutland Regional Medical Center. Go back to your infected state. If you're worried about cleaning up, clean up New York, where your plates are from. Tabitha Moore is the president of the Vermont chapter of the NAACP, and she saw the video, which was taken in late March, shortly after the man posted it on his Facebook page. A few weeks later, Moore shared it with Rutland City Police Chief Brian Kilcullen. He told VPR recently that he reviewed the footage and opted not to investigate it further. When I looked at it, I said, okay, from a police standpoint, first, is there anything criminal in nature? And from what I could gather from the video, it didn't appear anything was criminal in nature. So from a criminal standpoint, we would investigate that further. For Tabitha Moore, Kilcullen's decision not to investigate took on new significance after a press briefing by Governor Phil Scott last month. Scott had learned of an incident in the Upper Valley where an African-American man from Hartford, Vermont, was berated while driving in a vehicle with New York license plates. Scott condemned the incident on live TV. I want to be very clear. I have no tolerance for this kind of thing. It's unacceptable. It does not represent my views or who I believe we are as a state. And he ordered Vermont State Police to investigate the incident. Moore says it was a crystallizing moment. You know, it's really crazy. This is so similar to what happened in Rutland, and there's such a different response. There's stark contrast. It really speaks to, you know, how discretion plays a role in what justice looks like. Chief Brian Kilcullen says he wasn't aware of the incident until Moore sent him the video. And by the time that happened, he says, several weeks had passed since the footage was posted. Well, certainly in our case, we weren't aware of it for a month. We weren't called, the police department specifically. 
And Kilcullen says he isn't sure the man's behavior constituted a bias incident, let alone a crime. I wasn't sure that it necessarily was a bias incident. Captain Gary Scott is the director of fair and impartial policing for the Vermont State Police. He says he's reviewed the footage. Scott says he doesn't think the man's behavior was criminal, but he says he thinks the incident was motivated by racial bias. And he says he sent the footage to the attorney general's office for a civil review. Sort of the language and sort of the tone of all of it is something we definitely don't tolerate in Vermont. It was directed towards people of color from out of state with out of state license plates. VPR was unable to contact the man yelling in the video, despite numerous attempts via social media and phone to do so. And we're not using his name in this story because we were unable to independently confirm that the person whose Facebook page the footage appeared on is the same person heard yelling in the video. The man does not reference the Latina women's race during the encounter itself. On a message that accompanied the video on Facebook, however, he said the women had, quote, Jamaican accents. Bor Yang is the executive director of the Vermont Commission on Human Rights. A lot of people have watched this video and they see an angry man calling out people because of their New York place. And they see rudeness and ignorance, but they don't necessarily see racism. Yang, though, says it's the women's skin color that likely precipitated the exchange, that had they been white, the man probably wouldn't have gone off like he did. In fact, I haven't heard of any instances in which visitors to Vermont or people who uh, have second homes here who are white are saying that they're being harassed because of their license plate. And so race becomes sort of this basis to distinguish us from them. And that's what I see happening here. Three weeks ago, at Tabitha Moore's behest, Chief Brian Kilcullen forwarded the video to the Civil Rights Unit of the Attorney General's office so that it could decide whether or not the man's behavior constituted a bias incident. A bias incident is defined by the Attorney General's office as any event in which someone tries to threaten, offend, or intimidate someone based on their race, religion, country of origin, or other protected status. If the possibility exists, I think it's prudent just to afford it. Moore, though, is still unsatisfied because she says she still sees a gaping discrepancy in how bias incidents are dealt with by law enforcement agencies in Vermont. In Hartford, Vermont, the victim got a personal apology from the governor, a full-throated condemnation of the harassment he experienced, and a criminal investigation that, according to the Department of Public Safety, is still ongoing. But in Rutland, Moore says police decided not to investigate and sent the video to the attorney general's office only after being asked to by the NAACP as a police officer, but if you're thinking about 21st century policing models, you got to realize that you just did some serious harm with your disenfranchised community. Moore says the anti-racism protests across Vermont and the nation right now are about far more than the killing of a man while in police custody. It's the everyday things that are happening, like the incident in the Price Stopper parking lot. Those are the things that, that we should be attending to quickly and um, systemically. VPR asked the Attorney General's office whether it's investigating the incident in the Rutland parking lot. An official there said the office is unable to comment on the status or even existence of ongoing investigations. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Peter Hirschfeld. Last week, we asked you, our listeners, what can you do to dismantle systemic racism? And what reforms would you like to see? We heard from listener Stephanie Gomery in Vermont. Personally, I'm in favor of the abolition of police just because we know that the system is not flawed. It is working as it was designed to do, unfortunately, so it needs to be rebuilt and or restructured and reimagined. 
But um, in the meantime, we are advocating city council in Burlington to defund police and divert those funds to social programs and various other measures that will support communities of color in concrete ways. Gomer is a spokesperson for the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance. This week, we want to continue the conversation and hear from you. Do you think police departments need to be restructured or defunded? And if so, why or why not? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. You can also email us at next at ctpublic.org. I'll say that one more time. It's next at ctpublic.org. And we look forward to hearing from you. COVID-19 is disproportionately infecting and killing Black people. And even though younger Black millennials are not the hardest hit age group, many are still taking precautions this summer and being creative with their leisure activities, even as states reopen. In Boston, WGBH Radio's Soraya Wintersmith has the story. All right, now my pan's on high. I'm dropping it to low. Get ready to crack that egg right in there. On a Sunday brunch Zoom session, a group of several dozen black millennials are frying eggs sunny side up to pair with avocado toast. They're guided through each cooking step by a local chef on screen. A little bit of fresh cracked pepper right on top. Normally, this time of year, the group might be crammed side by side in a restaurant or a lounge. But with COVID-19 still lurking outside, Boston's young leisure leaders say they're trying to recreate fun outings in a way that brings people together safely. So because the chef is going through the meal preparation in real time, the idea is that folks are sharing the same meal, even though we're social distancing. Farah Belazaire runs Lightwork Events, a pop-up series of social events for Black millennials in greater Boston. After the food, the group mixes drinks, then kicks back for a virtual day party. Belazaire said she started hosting events like these back in 2012 after repeatedly hearing that the area has few spaces where people like her can connect. So having a space where, you know, you don't have to explain yourself or, you know, you can relate to various challenges that we experience being underrepresented really, I think, provides that psychological safety. Belazaire and others admit that a sense of safety and community is harder to achieve virtually. But COVID-19's disproportionate impact on Black communities has made it necessary. Of the Bostonians who tested positive and whose race or ethnicity is known, nearly 40 percent are black. The city's population is 25 percent black. I'm thinking of the people that are just still naive about the situation. DJ Motler Delexis has pivoted from entertaining in person to exclusively playing virtual events. He says the local COVID-19 data and the possibility of resurgence were on his mind when he recently received an inquiry to play a small graduation party. For me, I still don't think it's, it's quite safe. Even though he misses the energy of interacting with new people in new spaces, he turned the gig down. He says he's sticking to hosting free virtual events until he sees more data and guidelines from public health officials. Because I think we still need to celebrate milestones, celebrate events. 
but uh, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about health and safety of myself, my family, and also of my clients that hire me. Data is also on the minds of would-be partygoers like Ayanna Polk, who's been dutifully limiting her time outside. The last time I was out, March 9th, that was the last thing I went to. Ayanna, it is June 6th. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm itching. You know, part of me, like, wants to just go back to normal, but I understand the need to stay inside. Polk lives in Dorchester, one of the city's hardest-hit neighborhoods. She says the virtual fun has been a lifeline for Black millennials like herself, who are combating isolation while trying to slow the spread of the virus in their communities. For me, it's great to still have an opportunity to learn something new, to meet new people, and to still have fun, even though we're in the house now. Farah Belazaire adds that the recent focus on racism and police brutality have made virtual connections even more important for helping young Black people find support and foster resilience. For some people, that means I'm still going to get up every day and try to live my best life and still celebrate my Blackness with other people who I can celebrate in the same community. Building community while coping with a pandemic and the threat of police violence. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Soraya Wintersmith. Coming up, can we come out of the pandemic with strong climate action? Two scientists share their optimism and pessimism. Plus, the investigation into the loosely regulated industry that's selling medical masks during the COVID-19 crisis. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Since the pandemic hit, Carbon emissions have dropped globally. A study in Nature Climate Change found a 17% decrease in emissions by early April. In New England, data shows that air pollution and energy consumption are down. For those concerned about climate change, this seems positive. But where do we go next? Some see this as an opportunity, when systemic change is actually possible. Others are more pessimistic. Our two guests today see it both ways. Rob Klee is a lecturer at Yale University School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. He's also former commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Rob, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Morgan, for having me. Also with me is Professor Alex Barron. He teaches environmental science and policy at Smith College in Massachusetts. He formerly worked on climate policy in Congress and with the Environmental Protection Agency. Alex, welcome to Next. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. Now, in terms of where we go from here on climate change during this pandemic, you've both said that you can feel optimistic and pessimistic. And Alex, let's start with what makes you optimistic that we can come out of this particular health crisis and economic crisis with strong action on climate change. I think the the first thing is that the U.S. is really starting to wake up to the fact that we've had these big structural issues 
in our society that we've been ignoring for a long time. Climate is one of them. And concern about climate has just been growing over time. There was an expectation that people might be less concerned about climate change with everything else going on, but actually some of the recent polling data suggests that climate is still an area of concern for many Americans. And I think that's particularly true for younger Americans. And I also think that for everybody else, there's some really strong parallels between our slow and ineffective response in the early days of the coronavirus and climate change. If you think about uh, the pandemic, uh, epidemiologists had been warning of the risks of this kind of event. They had created a playbook for what a robust, appropriate response would look like. Uh, And in many ways, especially at the national level, we didn't follow that playbook. We sort of ignored the warnings. And that's come at a tremendous cost to society, both in terms of lives and suffering and and economics costs. And I think if you substitute epidemiologist for climate scientist, this sort of gives us a test case of of climate change on fast forward. And uh, I'm sort of optimistic that people will see the need for politicians to address these kinds of big risks to society. And then in order for us to come out of the economic straits that we're in, as a result of the pandemic, the federal government in particular is going to need to spend a bunch of money. And I think we owe it uh, to the people who are suffering right now or who have died as a result of the pandemic to to not just sort of return to status quo, but to build back better and to use this uh, rebuilding and restructuring of our economy, which we're going to have to do anyway, to try and also confront the climate crisis. And Rob, what about you? Why are you optimistic? So uh, on the federal government needing to spend money, the only color commentary I'd offer there is that they've just been spending trillions of dollars. And for most of us, that's, those numbers are almost mind-boggling. And we often were concerned in some ways about the scale and scope of investment that needs to be made across the board. And to have that sort of breakthrough in some ways that the government was willing to write some very big checks on to step up to this sort of large-scale pandemic challenge, I would point to that and say, yeah, let's keep doing that. And by the way, in solving that pandemic downturn, economic downturn, and our economic straits, you can invest those dollars in that clean energy future that will pay dividends over the next few decades. Well, so we have an example during the Obama administration, the Recovery Act, that was uh, basically an answer to the Great Recession, and it included specific things that would address and approach climate change. Um, And so you're both talking about this idea that stimulus money could come with those sort of stipulations and could come with uh, policy moving forward. But what are some really clear, specific things beyond that that need to happen and that could happen in this moment? And Rob, Rob, I'll start with you. In the in the long term, we're going to need systematic transformation of our economy and society. But in the near term, we've actually found in this sort of pandemic lifestyle that we can do some things that have a measurable carbon impact, like telecommuting, which if that continues, which I hope it will, will reduce the amount of time we're all in traffic and the emissions that we create will also shift the need for workspace and office space. So that'll be hopefully transformative since so many folks have now who 
have that ability to telecommute have now sort of demonstrated that it actually works. Alex, some people might say, look, we don't have the money to spend on this right now. What is your response to that? I I think I'd have a couple of responses. I think in the near term, when the economy grinds to a halt, economists, I think, sort of across the spectrum are of a, of a pretty clear view that federal spending is the sort of way to jump, re-jumpstart the economy. And so we, we are going to have to put some money out into the economy and get people back working and sort of help to re-stimulate the economy. And policymakers are always making choices about where those funds go and exactly how we do that. And so it's possible to make, to make tweaks in how we deploy those funds to make sure that we're making smart investments. Uh, I think another uh, idea that people have been kicking around is the creation of something like a climate core. So this might be similar to something like the Civilian Conservation Corps. There's going to be a lot of students who've just graduated from school. They're looking for work. They may have a hard time finding it. And if the federal government can fund work, um, we can put those students to work doing things to reduce emissions in our cities uh, and also make our communities more resilient to the impacts of climate change uh, while offering job training and skill building opportunities. And so that just seems like a fantastic investment in the sort of next generation of our country. All right. So it's time to put on our more pessimistic hats. So Rob, you first, what is standing in the way of achieving all these things you've both been talking about? The Trump administration, first and foremost. And when you have an administration populated by fossil fuel lobbyists as their administrators and you know heads of the key agencies, whether it be EPA or Interior or the like, um, to me, that's the, the number one sort of challenge. And at the federal level, it's a significant one because it, and it's not just the Trump administration, but also Congress. You need Congress to act in this direction. And so far... We haven't seen much real positive action in decades out of uh, this Congress or the um, or the administration. So that when I feel down about this, um, that's largely the reason that um, you need significant change in Washington. And the you know you hear some inklings and potential interests, but the scale and scope of this challenge, the amount of transformation that you need across all sectors of our economy really requires big, bold action. So the the things on the margin, I'm also, uh, that aren't big enough and bold enough uh, make me pessimistic. And then the third one for me is that um, we have an unfortunate history when we do these types of efforts, even in progressive states like Connecticut and California, we often do the easier things that tend to leave some segments of society behind. And I'm thinking about sort of equity concerns. So let, let's talk about this this equity issue, because there are clear links between health, climate change, and racial disparity. For one, we know that Black and Latino people are dying disproportionately from COVID-19. We know that these communities are typically exposed to more pollution, which in turn leads to poorer health outcomes. And then there's also this question of equity and clean energy. Uh, Alex, how have we seen clean energy solutions exclude both communities of color and poorer communities? Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of pieces to that. Uh, one is that we've made tremendous progress cleaning up the air in this country. 
um, but we haven't done so in an uh, equitable fashion. So there are, for example, some statistics suggesting that African Americans are exposed to particulate matter levels that are about 50% higher. And then it's also, uh, it's possible to design clean energy programs that really don't bring everyone along. So, you know, in the early days of deploying electric vehicles, those were mostly technologies that have been sort of moving towards uh, people who are on the wealthy end of the spectrum, although that I think is going to be starting to change pretty rapidly. And lots of programs, for example, that benefit homeowners, which obviously doesn't work for people who are uh, renting or in other kinds of housing arrangements and just in general things that benefit those who have a bunch of resources. And so we need to be sort of removing these barriers as we try and build a more inclusive response to climate change. Rob, you had to come to terms with this disparity directly when you were the commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Can you talk about what the disparity was at the time and, and what you did to change it? Yeah, thank you, Morgan. So I had the privilege of serving uh, on the Connecticut Green Bank board, and the Green Bank was in charge of Connecticut's residential solar programs. And uh, around 2012 or so, um, realized that we were having great sort of explosion of rooftop solar for households, but over 80% of it was going to our wealthy households, and less than 20% was going to areas below area median income. And for the poorest of poor folks, they were getting maybe 2% or 3% of the solar installs. And the board and the Green Bank worked to try to figure that out and figure out a solution, which they did. So they targeted three times the incentive for low and moderate income uh, areas. So that would get the installer community incentivized to build more rooftop you know, residential solar in those communities. And five years or so later, we achieved what we called you know, um, solar deployment parity, where half of the new residential solar installs were going to areas above area median income and half were going to below area median income. So if you work at it, you can, you know, first you have to recognize you have a problem and then you, know, you get people to start figuring out how to solve it. And that's what was really inspiring and something I enjoyed most about one of the, one of those things that I enjoyed most about my time as commissioner is actually getting to think about those challenges in deployment and equity and come up with creative solutions to head to really tackle them head on. My guests are Rob Klee, lecturer at Yale University School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and Alex Barron, professor of environmental science and policy at Smith College. This has been hugely educational. Thank you both so much for your time. Thanks for having us, Morgan. Yeah, thank you, Morgan. During the COVID-19 pandemic, states have searched far and wide for personal protective equipment. In response, armies of middlemen have sprung up, offering to find N95 masks and other PPE for hospitals and frontline workers that need them. But a WBUR investigation finds their services can come at a cost, and some of them have little or no experience. Beth Healy reports. Simon 97027, taxi runway 35 and verify the weather. We got the weather and we'll taxi to 35. Uh, Businessman Brian Danza pilots a single engine aircraft to Boston's Logan Airport. It's a momentous day for him, so much so that he documents the flight in a video he'll share on YouTube. This is a very special flight. Today is April 2nd, and we're going to Boston to receive an order of masks that I got from China delivered to Massachusetts. 
The shipment of nearly a million masks will make headlines. It arrives in the New England Patriots jet to the relief of state officials who are struggling to find supplies for hospitals, nursing homes, and public safety departments. This was one of Danza's first forays into the business of selling medical masks. He revels in the moment the Patriots jet arrives on the tarmac. My baby's here. Pretty incredible. Danza is a 39-year-old marathoner who worked in the George W. Bush administration and then for right-wing media. His current company, Foxbat Media, claims to have delivered 5 million pieces of protective medical gear in the last two months. He's part of a vast wave of people who've jumped into this business seeking profits amid the coronavirus outbreak. Hospital managers say it's turned the once routine matter of ordering masks into a wild west with hundreds of players they've never heard of before. Over the past uh, 90 days or so, it's been really, really challenging because the options that we had have dried up really quickly, specifically the N95 masks. That's Mark Faulkner. He oversees the supply chain at Partners Healthcare, the parent of Mass General and other large hospitals. He says sorting out who's real and who's not is time-consuming. So is navigating a huge spike in prices. Much of that's due to supply and demand, but some of it appears to be more nefarious. A lot of it has really been fake uh, or fraudulent in one ways, or, or pricing has just been astronomical. Faulkner says some brokers try to charge many times more than what the hospital normally pays. The N95 mask that used to cost around 50 cents a piece was going for as much as 9 or $10 at the height of the outbreak. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy is investigating allegations of price gouging. Bottom line, products are scarce and people and companies, entities shouldn't be exploited. Healy declined to comment on specific companies, but a New Jersey firm tells WBUR it's one of two that are under investigation. Healy says her office has received more than 200 complaints about prices on medical gear and orders that simply vanish. You're forced to deal with some unsavory characters sometimes. You may not know that at the beginning, but you learn there are, you know, for for dozens of purchase orders that are put in, only a few materialize. Part of the reason is the complex process of securing a deal with factories in China. A slew of companies are trying their hand at this. There's a Pennsylvania office furniture seller and a California oxygen therapy company. And there's Jarvis Green, the former New England Patriots player. He's now in the shrimp business. None of those vendors agreed to be interviewed for this story. Katie Smith owns Rockflower Paper, a clothing and home goods seller in California that has acquired masks for Massachusetts. She's done business in China for 35 years and felt she had a leg up. So I have a guy in China. Her guy goes by the American name Kobe Bryant. A lot of times you'd have to call the same factory 20, 25 times to even get through because they were so busy. But he's a pretty persistent guy. He was literally working seven days a week, traveling all over China, walking into these factories and, and vetting them. But even when she thought she'd nailed a contract, at times it would fall through. She describes what it was like to show up at a factory to pick up an order in the morning. Telling you, they literally had people standing in line outside the door waiting for them to open every day. Trucks pulling up, you know, one day we thought we had this deal with this factory that we love. And then the Italian government came in and said, we need 20 million masks. And we got pushed to the side. Smith wasn't even trying to get N95 masks, the kind preferred by the U.S. government because they filter out 95 percent of particles. She says those were impossible to get in April. So she focused on KN95s, which regulators started to allow as an emergency measure. Smith won't say how much she made on the Massachusetts masks. 
She says it was a fair price at the lower end of the scale. Danza, the broker who helped the Patriots bring masks to the state, didn't want to speak on the record with WBUR. But he recently detailed the deal on a runner's podcast called Pace the Nation. The state of Massachusetts at this point had had put out a bunch of purchase orders and put out a, a bunch of money. Mine just seemed put to be the one that was the most real, the quickest. The deal was $4 million on about 1.5 million masks, so roughly $2.66 a piece. A large number of them turned out to be KN95s and not the preferred N95. Danza tells the host, Chris Farley, that he too was getting pitches from mask sellers. Everybody's trying to make a quick buck, and it's frankly a little bit disgusting. Um, and and I've, I've screamed at a few of them. I'm just <laughs> like, I can't believe that you're doing this. Right. Yeah. Danza says he wants to help out during the mask shortage, but he also acknowledges the business has worked out well for him. This isn't a big, like, money-making thing for you. Uh, no, but it... it, it I would be lying if I said that I'm not like it's good for business making a decent yeah, amount of money. It's good for business for you. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's not alone in finding the pandemic can be good for business. There are countless others trying to make money as well, and they'll likely stick around until the shortages ease. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Beth Healy. WBUR's Christine Wilmson also did reporting for this investigation. After the break. We'll talk to a co-founder of the hashtag Black in the Ivory about racism in academia. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Our final guest today is Charday M. Davis. She's a communications professor at the University of Connecticut. She's also the co-founder of the Twitter hashtag Black in the Ivory. The hashtag was created a little over a week ago and has taken off, amplifying the voices of black scholars at universities across the country who have been dealing with racism on the job. Professor Davis, thank you for talking. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I've given a kind of brief description of the hashtag Black in the Ivory, but can you tell us more about it and what motivated you and co-founder Joy Melody Woods to start this hashtag? Absolutely. Um, The hashtag was not created um, with this movement in mind. The origin really is I was sitting on my couch and was on Twitter and was really just thinking about my own experiences of racism in the academy. So I thought of, you know, I wanted to just share my own stories on Twitter and went to sleep. And the next morning, um, (laughs) it, it had grown legs. Yeah. Why do you think it just like took off so quickly? I think because for so long, you know, Black academics, we've never been able to share our stories. The ivory towers is really shrouded. The reg, quote unquote regular Joe Schmo, you know, the lay American doesn't really know what happens in academia, doesn't really know much about a PhD program or even some of our professional doctorate programs, doesn't really know what it means to be a faculty person. And so um, I think because of that, there are aspects of um, academic life, of moving through the ranks, being in graduate school that um, go, you know, people turn a blind eye to it. And those who are going through it, you're just happy you made it, you know? 
So, and, and it's just, it's difficult to kind of talk back and fight against. You try, you, there are repercussions and you get muzzled. So I think this opened a door and it just was the right time, honestly. It was just the right time, the right platform, the right moment. And so as you mentioned, you began the hashtag by sharing your own experiences. And I'm wondering if you're willing and comfortable to talk a little bit about what you shared. Sure. Um, There, I mean, are many and a lot of, I think the really traumatic ones have absolutely been suppressed um, and not even on a conscious level, but a subconscious level. Um, But for example, being heavily criticized for my writing, but faculty or or professors not really offering any guidance beyond that. Whereas my other uh, white colleagues, I mean, any graduate student, their writing is not good. It's just the facts. Um, But for some reason, you know, my work was more heavily critiqued than others. Um, being told that I wasn't going to make it. Oh gosh, I can I have many, many instances of that, that I didn't have what it took to be in an R1, that I should, uh, an R1 meaning a research institution, which is the highest kind of level um, in the hierarchy for universities, um, that I didn't have what it takes. Being told that I was really um, aggressive and defensive during my dissertation defense. It's a defense, right? So when someone critiques it, you know that you have a, a retort, you're going to share it. But for some reason, because it came out of my body, it became an issue. And that was, I think, a stereotype that a lot of people held me to um, during that part of my graduate career. They, There were many of my, uh, again, white graduate colleagues who were, I mean, borderline disrespectful they never got critiqued or reprimanded or talked about um, in the same way I did. One of the themes in the threads is uh, Black academics and scholars talking about really not sharing these experiences for so long for fear of repercussions, like not getting tenure or, or not getting to that next step. And I wonder what kind of support have you received in the past few weeks as you've just, you know, put it all out there on Twitter? I mean, praise God, I've received nothing but support, really, from Black academics, from my dean, my chair, my other colleagues, all of whom are white. The president of of UConn reached out just to give me kudos on, on the work that's being done. So yeah, the list is long, and I'm really thankful and fortunate that they um, recognize that I'm doing this as a way of standing on the side of right, and I'm glad that they see that. Is there any part of you that feels... Like it's there's this moment now and perhaps white colleagues are paying more attention. um, But does it feel frustrating because it's taken so long? Does it feel like a particular opportunity for change? Maybe it feels like both things. Hmm. Yes, certainly. Certainly there are moments where I'm like, I've been saying this, you know, since I'm blue in the face and was dismissed trying to explain racism and for me, gendered racism, not only as a black person, but also as a woman, they're criti- critically intersect. And, you know, white academics thinking that I just want extra attention or I'm trying to be negative or I'm playing the victim. So in a way, I'm, I'm happy that they get it now. And all I can do is really kind of move forward. But there are moments where it, it does get frustrating. And I have taken the time to have one-on-one conversations with people to say, I'm glad you get it now, but you were at the center of some of those stories. Some of those messages came out of your mouth and I need you to recognize that and acknowledge that and atone for that. 
Yeah, you, you've given this space for Black colleagues and scholars to share their stories. And then there are also a number of threads that kind of address what you're just talking about right now that speak directly to what white colleagues could and should do to be more inclusive and anti-racist. What are some of the main points that you think rise to the top? Action. Action. We want change. And that is not just Black academics. That's really Black folks around this nation and allies who um, have also been doing this work for a long time. Action and change. Be about it. We are, we are done with the dialogue. Yeah. And in terms of uh, systemic change within academic organizations, has this spurred any talk about institutional changes in colleges and universities? And, and what would you like to see? It has um, spurred some conversations. Um, but again, we don't just want conversation. And the change, what does that mean? That means that folks are looking at their policies from the top down. Historically, how many graduate students of color have they admitted? That can also go to the Office for Research where they're giving out grants. What kind of grant proposals? What is the rubric that they're using? And also thinking about hiring practices for faculty. So those are just some examples, but they need to be codified in policy, process, and procedure. Do you want to share any advice to Black students as they consider or prepare to enter academia? Um, My advice would be to make sure that you have a strong support network, Um, family and friends back at home, perhaps people from your place of worship, and make sure that you build a strong network with other Black students on campus who understand what it means to walk in this body around that campus. And then finally, um, have a mentor and and honestly, find a mentor uh, on that campus who looks like you. Professor Davis, thank you so much for talking to me. Absolutely. My pleasure. That was Sharday M. Davis, a communications professor at the University of Connecticut and co-founder of the Twitter hashtag Black in the Ivory. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.